Our New Testament lesson today comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. And I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross. I've often told you of them. And now I tell you, even with tears, their end is destruction. Their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of His glory by the power that also enables Him to make all things subject to Himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O oh Lord God, in this time and through this word, we ask that your glory would be revealed, your gospel would be proclaimed, and that all who hear would be convicted and encouraged, because you, O oh Lord, are worthy of all praise. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, because you, O oh God, are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Today seems like a good day to talk about citizenship. Specifically, citizenship as it pertains to who we are in Christ and how that reality impacts how we live in the world into which we have been sent. Citizenship is a topic that's on our minds today. As the dust begins to settle on the election, the voices calling for healing and uniting are growing. And whether that's fluffy rhetoric or a genuine desire, it remains to be seen. With how close the votes were, and the polarized positions those votes represented, there are real questions about whether the people of this country can, or more importantly, are willing to transcend differences in order to come together. I pray that we will. Now, prior to the election, we heard quite a bit about our civic duty as citizens to get out and vote. We responded. There were more votes cast in this election than any other in our nation's history. And in fact, the percentage vote by eligible voters was the highest it's been since 1900. Now, our verses in Philippians today talk about citizenship. And I want to spend some time reflecting on this idea. And as you may recall... Prior to serving here, we lived and served a congregation in Chula Vista. Now, Chula Vista is located in South San Diego. And at night, at our home, we looked south and we looked into the lights of Tijuana. 
I mean, that's literally what we did. Okay? We had a front row seat for those who were seeking citizenship through the immigration process. And we certainly saw our fair share of illegal immigration and the issues that caused too. But I want to narrow my thoughts here to the things I witnessed with those who made the effort to pursue citizenship through the process we have in place. Because most, if not all of us here today, have our American citizenship as a result of our birth. We were born in the United States, or we were born to American parents. So our, our citizenship and our belonging here was automatic. That's true for me. So I never really thought about it, aside from election season and jury duty, until we lived in Chula Vista. And it was like seeing live and in person what I had only known through those grainy black and white newsreel videos of the ships filled with the teeming masses steaming past Statue of Liberty on their way to Ellis Island and Battery Park. Now, don't get me wrong, I have a special place in my heart for Memorial Day and the 4th of July and Veterans Day, which is this Wednesday. I count it as a tremendous blessing to be able to pray for and to give thanks to God for those who sacrifice and who have sacrificed in order for me to enjoy the opportunities and privileges that I've received. But I have to confess that my sentiments on those days tend to be more grateful patriotism than any kind of real deep thoughts about the meaning and significance of citizenship. And it wasn't until I walked alongside people taking the steps to gain citizenship that I realized how much it costs and how valuable it is. Our citizenship process is not easy. It takes a long time. And navigating it can be really difficult because the steps can change mid-course. You can take one step forward and then get knocked back two or three. And hiring an attorney to guide you through the various administrative requirements is costly. Quickest I ever knew someone to make it from application to the granting of citizenship was about 18 months. Most took five to seven years. And it's well known in the community of those seeking citizenship that the process is daunting. I mean, one of the reasons people, why people wait to make that first step is because it's terrifying. The unknowns are overwhelming. You have no control. You have to hope you are deemed worthy. The questions weigh heavily, am I going to get lost in the system? I mean, spaces are limited. Are they going to have enough room for me? Will you encounter somebody in the process who's not sympathetic to your cause? Will you even understand what's required? I mean, even if you're conversational in English, many of the forms read like those end-user agreements you have for the software on your computer. How many of you have ever read through those? and know what you agreed. 
Okay. Imagine then trying to fill out those forms where you're struggling to understand the importance of the words being used and your future is at stake. Yet people face those fears and they take those steps because the hope, the hope of gaining citizenship means that much to them. The dream of being an American citizen is a driving aspiration that people hold as they persevere through month after month of silence, of waiting, wondering, and insecurity. The sacrifices and the struggles are worth it when they think of the life they can begin to pursue and more so the life that their children and their grandchildren might be able to have. I mean, each step completed successfully is greeted with celebration and cautious optimism. And then the realities of the next hurdles take them back to the silence and the waiting and the wondering and the insecurity. There's nothing they can do to speed up the process. And there is much that they can do to kill it. Well, during the decade plus that we served in Chula Vista, I had three separate occasions to celebrate the granting of citizenship. Each individual was as jubilant as a World Series victory. Each individual was as relieved as the marathon runner crossing the finish line. And each was as hopeful about the future as they had been nervous in the past. Why? Being an American matters. Being an American means you have access to unprecedented opportunity. You have the opportunity to go after the American dream, the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Being an American means you are in a country where the majority may rule, but the minority's rights are protected and their voices are heard. It may not be automatic, and it may not be easy, but the system here is tangibly and overtly different than systems around the world, different enough that people want to come here. People flee to get here in order to be part of what is this great experiment. It's the best the world has to offer. So what does this have to do with the Philippians? Well, let me put it this way. The way applicants long for the things American American citizenship offers, the way they long for that so much greater are the ways we long for the realizing of the hope of citizenship in God's heavenly kingdom. The sacrifices, the struggle, and the leaving behind of what was are all worth it because of the promises of what awaits. In this letter to his friends in Philippi, Paul was writing to update them, to thank them, and to encourage them to continue on in the gospel that they had heard and received from him. 
then he began to write to them about the challenges and the opposition they would face. Specifically, he was urging them to be discerning about those who would require them to do anything in addition to receiving Jesus Christ. Chief example being circumcision as a requirement or a litmus test of loyalty. To Paul, seeking to impose Jewish law, customs, and practices would be like requiring new American citizens to maintain the driver's licenses from their countries of origin, to pay taxes to those countries, and to swear allegiance, all contrary to the oath that they took when becoming American citizens. None of those things are valuable for their hard-won status as Americans. If you remember the verses we covered last week, Paul recounted his pedigree. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel or the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In short... Paul's status and credentials as a Jew were impeccable. His birth, his education, his training, his career path, the recognition he had received, and his reputation were all examples of Jewish litmus tests he had passed and treasured until, until he encountered the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Paul wrote immediately after giving his resume? Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. Loss. I regard them as rubbish. And rubbish, as those of you who were here last week remember, was a polite way of translating what is more accurately intended as excrement or dung. Christ is so much greater than anything the world has to offer. Now our verses this week begin, Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Now, taken as a starting point or out of context or on its own, that's a, like an incredible or remarkable statement of hubris. I mean, we bristle when somebody says something like that. Dude, seriously, how great of an opinion of yourself do you have? Right? You hypocrite, you're just like those people you were warning us to, to avoid. Now, taken in context, Paul was saying something very different. He was reminding his friends of the riches of discipleship in Jesus. Paul was saying, imitate me in not valuing the things that have no lasting value. Imitate me in treasuring the very treasure of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, imitate my focus on Christ. Imitate my passion for Christ. Imitate the hope I have found 
in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul was contrasting the hope he had found with the plight of the enemies of Christ. He used some interesting phrasing here. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Why would Paul grieve over those who were enemies of the cross? Paul told of them with tears because they were people like he was before his Damascus Road experience. These were people who were confident in their pedigree, confident in their conformity to the law, confident in their ability to sit in judgment over others, confident in their zeal to conform the revelation of Christ to what existed prior to Christ. Now, whether Paul was thinking of specific individuals he had described to the Philippians during his time with them, or whether he was thinking of the kinds of individuals he had encountered on his journeys, or if he was thinking of people he had known when he was growing up, Paul recognized in them the destructive path they were pursuing. I mean, in Romans 9, he wrote, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all God-blessed forever. In other words, Paul is anguished by those who are rejecting Christ while simultaneously holding on to the very things that pointed to Christ. They were proud, relying on their pedigree and their faithfulness to the requirements of the covenant law that Christ had fulfilled, while ignoring and rejecting the surpassing sufficiency of the new covenant that Christ instituted and effected. In other words, those seeking to make good Jews out of Christians were most sincerely and passionately seeking to draw them back to a world, a worldly citizenship of futility, of desperation, and hopelessness. So when Paul wrote, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example that you have in us, he's exhorting them to hold on to the assured hope of salvation and eternal life that comes with receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Their minds are set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. So, what are the implications if our citizenship is in heaven? Well, first, it means that Christians are foreigners living in a foreign land. Yes, we hold kind of a dual citizenship, but our primary and our priority citizenship is as a servant of the king of the kingdom of heaven. The Philippians understood this tension because they were part of the Roman Empire. 
Proclaiming Jesus as Lord was contrary to the civic requirement of loyalty to Caesar. Same tension exists for us. We can and should participate in our civic responsibilities of this nation, but we cannot mistake those as being identical to our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus. Yes, we can debate, and we can engage, and we can disagree, and we can argue about what's best for this country. And yes, we can and we should vote. However, we cannot conflate and mistake the government of the United States with the kingdom of heaven. Elsewhere, Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. So we do pray for our elected officials, in seasons when they're to our liking and in seasons when they are not to our liking. We pray that they serve in ways pleasing in God's sight. We pray they act so we can live with all godliness and dignity. Because our citizenship is in heaven, it means that we are heaven's representatives sent here. We are Christ's ambassadors. And that's true whatever are our circumstances. We are the tangible reflection of Christ. We have been sent by Christ, go, for Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. That is true whatever are our circumstances. Look at Gideon. Look at Paul. Paul was incarcerated in an earthly prison, yet he was undeterred from pursuing his calling to bear witness as a redeemed and free citizen of heaven. From prison he wrote them, Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It's by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. So our citizenship in heaven means that we are foreigners living in a foreign land. But that our citizenship is in heaven also means that our citizenship has been granted. This wasn't a future promise. It's a current declaration. Our citizenship has been granted. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now. Not after I die, but my citizenship is in heaven now. I grew up in a Christian family, and so I had never really thought about this. From the earliest time I remember being taught about Jesus, it was with the understanding that having Jesus meant I would go to heaven when I die. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray my soul the Lord to take. Right? 
when I was convicted and I professed Jesus as my Savior and Lord, I knew that I was heaven bound. Yet my current status was not something I really considered. Or, more truthfully, for a long time, calling myself a Christian didn't stop my doubts about belonging to heaven now. Shared all the fears and the concerns I hear from others. The unknowns are overwhelming. You have no control. Sometimes things seem like they're taking too long. Sometimes it seems like things have gone wrong. You wonder if there is room for you in heaven. And you have to hope that you're deemed worthy. Questions weigh heavily. Will I get lost in the system? Will God even know my name? Will God be sympathetic to my cause? Do I even understand what's required? Now, I don't think I'm alone in that. My sense is that there are many who think of salvation as something primarily related to what happens after death. Even longtime Christians wrestle with these questions of belonging. Going to church and worshiping and trying to be good Christians are good things we know we're supposed to do in gratitude and response to the promise of salvation we've received. However, it seems to be a new notion that we are now already citizens of the kingdom of heaven and representatives of it sent to bear witness. But notice, Paul confirmed it. He was writing to those who professed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our citizenship is in heaven. Receive that affirmation. Receive that confirmation. Receive the peace that comes from knowing you have been adopted. You have been made a part of this family. You have been made Christ's own. But I didn't earn it. No, you did not. You did not. And no, you could not. To you, it has been given by the one who did earn it. It was tough. It was painful. It involves sacrifice, struggle, and suffering. It involved obedience to the Father in heaven in conflict with the powers of the world. Jesus did it. And because Jesus did it, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, it wasn't until I walked alongside Jesus, taking the steps to gain my citizenship, did I realize how much it costs, how valuable it is. The way applicants long for the things American citizenship offers, so much greater are the ways that we await the full realization of what citizenship in God's heavenly kingdom will be. The sacrifices, the struggle, and the leaving behind of what was are all worth it because of the promises of what awaits. So therefore, 
my brothers and sisters whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord this way, my beloved. Amen. And let us pray. Almighty God, what joy it is to hold the promise, to hold the assurance, to hold the hope of life, life eternal, life in communion with you that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would fill us with the peace and the confidence of knowing that hope assured and that we would become vessels and instruments of your grace, ambassadors for Christ into this community that your glory would be revealed and your children would come to sing your praises. We ask these things through Christ, who is our Savior. Amen. And as Abel, let's stand and sing, Living for Jesus.
Friends, remember who you are, remember whose you are, and to whom you belong. And go forward from this place with the good news that the kingdom of heaven is sure, because we know that God's steadfast love endures forever. So now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, rest, remain, and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Praise the Lord.